Hey folks, Brian here with a quick update before the show. Uh, we recorded this before the news that Dan Dudio was leaving DC broke, and so we're not going to address that this week for obvious reasons, but don't worry, next week will be full of our Dudio takes and perhaps an impression or two. Fare thee well, Dan, and uh, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the DC Three Cast. I am Brian. With me, as always, as Vince, uh, Zach is uh, still not here for this week. We are going to hopefully get him back in a week or two. But filling in today is a multiversity staffer, a gentleman who has been—we've been trying to get him on the show for a while, but it just hasn't worked out. But here he is, and that is Alexander Jones. Hello, friend. Hey guys, thank you so much for having me on this week. Oh, it's our absolute pleasure. Um, for folks that maybe haven't read yourself in Multiversity, what's give us like two or three of your favorite comics, just so people can get a, ta- a sense of sort of who you are as a reader. Uh, good, good question. So I'm I'm a really big fan of the uh, the the Rucka Batwoman run, um, and then I also am a huge mark for Grant Morrison as well. I really, really love. All-Star Superman. Oh, you're going to fit in well on the show. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Basically, being a mark for Grant Morrison is our brand, so. <laughs> yeah, and and the Rucka Batwoman stuff is very good. Um, yeah, and I, I just think in general, well, this is actually a conversation I wanted to have maybe at some point in the next year. I wanted to look back on Rucka's work at DC, like, before and after his break, because I feel like since he's come back, in some ways, I think he picked up right where he left off. But there's something about specifically that Batwoman era where I feel like he was just operating on a different level. And uh, I, I want to go back and re- reread that stuff soon and maybe talk about it on the show. So anyway, welcome, Alexander. It's nice to have you here. Um, let's let's dig into the books, though. So first up this week, we have Aquaman number 57. Before we talk about that issue, um, last month... There was a, a sort of an odd fill-in issue of Aquaman that I I had skipped over, and um, it brought back the characters from the Trench. So just by a show of hands, who remembered the Trench was a thing? Oh, I did. You did? Yeah, that was that really decompressed uh, Jeff Johns stuff, right? Yeah, and it was in the movie, and I still forgot it existed. <laughs> Are you an Aquaman guy, Alexander? Yeah, I, I I really like Aquaman. I I tried to like that run so much, like when it when it was coming out. But I just don't think that that whole storyline um, with the trench, like, really really ended up going like anywhere when like all was uh, said and done. Which which I don't really think has been um, as as big of a problem uh, with with uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick's Aquaman run, which I've been like really really happy about. Yeah, I, I think we've all kind of talked about how. Jeff Johns was trying to, quote, rehabilitate Aquaman and just made him even more boring than he was before. I don't really know what he thought he was doing with that run. But then that run spun off into that other, was it a Dan Juergens title? It was Aquaman a Dan Juergens joint. Aquaman yeah. and the others, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, And that was also interminable to get through. So 
I well, think- and the other thing, the other thing is that I think I suspect that Jeff Johns had a bigger plan that he just never got to, or it kept getting interrupted. Because to this day, he still talks about like the War of the Seven Seas or something like that, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and he just never got to do that. And I don't think, um, I don't think that would have made his run much better because I think part of the reason he didn't, he never got there was because it was so decompressed to begin with. But the new 52 was so fraught with like editorial meddling and, and false starts and things that, that, you know, who knows how that was all intended to go in the first place. Yeah. For my JSA read, read through, I'm just, I'm reading right now when, Johns was writing both Stars and Stripe and JSA at the same time. And mm. it's it's wild to think about there was a time that Johns was writing like two and three books at a time. Because ever since the New 52, he pretty much... I guess he started with Aquaman and Justice League, but was pretty quickly off mm. of Aquaman. Green Lantern, too. Oh, he was doing three? Holy shit, you're right, yeah. Yeah. And then since Rebirth, he's done... I mean, he's done Shazam, which is technically a monthly book, but we all know that's not really a monthly book. And Doomsday Clock, that's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, this issue of Aquaman, number 57, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, illustrated by Robson Roca and uh, Daniel Henriquez. Uh, so this is the finale of the Amnesty arc, which has, um, I thought, been a relatively effective way to bring together sort of these disparate parts of the Aquaman story, bringing uh, Aqualad back into it. Bringing Amnesty Bay and those characters, and also the characters from the first arc, the sort of old gods, in there. Um, so, Alexander, you're the guest. What did you think of this issue? Yeah, um, I'm. I I totally agree with with uh, kind of what you were saying before. I mean, Kelly Kelly Sudakonic has a lot of ground to cover um, in 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 this arc in particular. She has to kind of uh, introduce uh, the elements of the opening arc of Aquaman. And then fit it into the the modern uh, interpretation of of the character. And there's a lot of conflict between um, Aquaman and and Mara, uh, like you were saying before. But but now, I mean, there's there's also like the extreme added, you know, like soap opera kind of twist of uh, Mara being being pregnant, which I I thought this issue kind of walks uh, uh, really complicated uh, balancing act between juggling so many different uh, pieces and, and does a very good job keeping them afloat. I mean, there's even a bunch of references to uh, Dan Abnett's run here that I really wasn't expecting uh, Kelly Sue to, to keep uh, this far into her run. I mean, like Dolphin is in this issue. Uh, Dolphin is, you know, for, she she's actually in the issue for for quite a few pages. We in um, we have the the larger scope of Atlantis that that Dan Abnett built, which is still very much represented here. So I mean, I I was really really impressed by just how much material is fit into this issue and interwoven just so seamlessly together. I I I really think I mean I've 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 loved Kelly Sue DeConnick's run pretty much since it started. But I think this is just about the best it's ever been. Vince, what say you? Yeah, I I, I would agree. Um, I really like when I really like when uh, big two comics 
build on one another rather than try to take things away or um I guess I, I like when they're additive, I guess is the best way to say that. And I think Kelly Sue's run has really been that. And um uh you know, the beginning of the run was, you know, I think from a quality perspective, it was really high. But just starting with a starting with an Arthur that's lost all his memories and is like more or less a blank slate, it was kind of a tough sell. And I think like it was good, but it required commitment to the bit, right? And I think, you know, for for us as readers, you know, for us, for the show, we can easily give the comic the time that it needs, you know? And I, I just hope that regular readers have, because since then, you know, even though that was a very good arc, since then, I think it's become a, a much better Aquaman book just about every issue. And I think it's because Kelly Sue keep stacking all these things as we already kind of talked about. Um, she's not taking things away or changing things. So, well, I guess she's adding a baby to the proceedings, which is pretty, that's a pretty big change, but I mean, like she's not doing the sorts of annoying um, changes that are sometimes editorially driven or like uh, deconstructive to the character. You know, um, I, I think everything she's doing is, is, adding to the mythos, uh, creating drama. And, uh, and I think it's looked really good too. I think, I think Robson Roca continues to do, I, I think we said, you know, career work recently with regards to his art on Aquaman. And I think that that, uh, that continues. This is a really nice looking book. I love how at the end of the issue, it just kind of like they're at the Atlantean hospital and, Every couple pages, like another character shows up who's like <laughs> involved in involved in the Aquaman world, and uh, you, you get Volko coming, then you get Ocean Master, and it's like, you know, that's the additive thing. Everybody is showing up, just so happens at the the time that Mira is having the baby, and uh, I, I just wanted to also say uh, congratulations to Arthur and Mira on a it's a girl. Hang on. <laughs> uh, Brian, what'd you think? I, I agree with everything you guys said. I think it's a really well done issue, and I specifically am glad, Vince, that you mentioned the sort of the additive effect of you know not undoing what Abnett did, especially because you know in Abnett's run, Arthur did not have the um, the sort of Jason Momoa tattoos and wasn't. Uh, surfer bro aquaman or sorry surfer bra aquaman as we've talked about a little bit in this run so it can be easy to on the surface say like well this is kelly sue doing her own thing and somewhat ignoring what came before it but i think when you when you dig into it she's really just building off of what abnett did and abnett in some ways still sort of building off of what jeff johns did uh with his run uh although less so sort of with each passing issue but there are sort of little bits of of his run like the trench you know coming back here and so i think that she's doing a really good job of giving people an aquaman book that is accessible to new readers but also very much rewarding for folks that have been following the journey so far um i uh i do think that it's very purposeful that they had a daughter because how well do you guys know the story of Aquaman's son from the uh, Bronze Age? Mm, I, not really very much at all. 
Okay, so let me see if I'm getting this correct. So um, Aquaman and, and Mira first had a child. I want to say it was in the 50s. And they, they just called him kind of Aqua Baby for a while. Um, but what happened was that that child was killed by Black Manta. Um, and there was, a, there was a whole period of... Of, uh, of Aquaman comics where Aquaman was dealing with the sort of grief of losing a child and also the grief of, I guess, sort of like he felt that he, he was that he was responsible for this life and, and he let the character, he let the, he let his son down. And so um, I guess it was like 10 years worth of stories built up to his death. And then um, after he died, that was sort of a major Aquaman plot point. So anyway, I'm, what I what the reason I'm saying that is I think that giving him a daughter will lead to people not instantly just presuming they're gonna kill this baby off also, uh, <laughs> or that they're just doing so it'll like, be more surprising when they do exactly yes um, and like and the death of the baby is what split up Aquaman and Mira the first time so I feel mm-hmm. like they've been doing such a will they won't they with them this is just another way for them to uh, split them up I guess. Um, but no, I, I thought this was a really good issue. I, I'm very happy with where this is going, and uh, I am, I am really hoping that Kelly Sue gets a nice long run on this book. With all the sort of five G stuff that is popping up, it can be pretty hard to, to see a clear path for her to do like you know. Um, I don't think there's anybody in this book that is naturally going to be the 5G Aquaman unless it's Aqualad. Is that who you guys just presume it'll be? I would I would guess so. That would be the I think that would be like the the odds on favorite. Yeah. Any outside thoughts Alexander about that? I mean, essentially the only two people that 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 we have here is, you know, Aquaman's daughter and uh uh that that new, you know, Essentially, the the Aqualad who has now been folded back into uh, this this continuity, but definitely, you know, like you were saying, if if they decide to go in a new direction, I mean, uh, you know, I know I know DC is not going to want to lose uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick. I mean, it would be fantastic to to maybe shift Aquaman to a five G direction and to keep uh, Ke- Kelly Sue on. I mean, I'd love to see. Uh, Robson Roca go along with her as well. I, I, I just think they're such a stellar uh, creative team, and every single issue that they've worked on has been uh, just like absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, and also, speaking to what I think kind of Vince was saying earlier, I, I, I do think that the issue kind of does have a, a slow burn effect, at, at least like when the series started, like when they, when they brought you into that story with the sea gods and they kind of mind wiped. Aquaman's memory. It, it it took readers a little while to acclimate to what Kelly Sue was doing. But now that we've gotten past that phase, I think the book has been like all the more interesting for it. And it would be, I think it might be kind of a, sh- uh, a shame to see the book shift to 5G so soon after readers just got back um, to, to seeing Aquaman again. But, you know, it's kind of the nature of comics, right? Yeah. yeah. That's DC, baby. <laughs> uh, here's an outside thought. What if Dolphin was the uh, the lead character for a while? That'd be that'd be interesting. She had her own book like back in the seventies or something. Um, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. That'd be 
That'd be fine, but I think I agree with Alexander that like were they to do that, it would be a shame to lose the momentum of what Kelly Sue's been doing. But I think like DC has shown that they are willing to uh, flip the script on writers at any point to the point where they're like telling Grant Morrison, "Hey, wrap this up four issues earlier." You know, it's they're willing to do it. They're they're going to rip that bandaid right off. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. And I and I think you know, Dolphin, I could see her on the table too. I think she'd be probably odds behind Aqualad and and even the new baby. But um, I could see it. I could see it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the 5G landscape looks like. Like, for instance, I think that you could pretty much imagine any of those three characters we just mentioned becoming the lead of this book, but this book not losing the momentum that it is um, it has going for it right now. But you could also see the 5G thing being totally different. You know what I'm saying? So I think yeah. it depends sort of what 5G actually looks like. That's a good point because we don't actually even know. Like we we just assume that it's legacy characters taking up the mantle, but like I think we had kind of a, a back and forth on the show. Uh, maybe it was last week where like my impressions of five G were, were that the legacy characters were all going to be younger. And Brian, I think you thought you know well it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they, they are older characters that are in their like, you know, mid twenties, early thirties, which, which just in my mind, I had always pictured them being like teen Titans slash young justice level characters. But we don't know that it could, they could do a time skip. You know, the, the rumor is that everybody's getting aged. Right. So who knows how far the time skip goes. Right. Um, we we need more information before we are able to pinpoint what's possible, I guess. Yeah. I, I'm I'm really wondering when we're gonna get the official word on all of this. I know we keep saying that, but I, I feel like finding out about the different generations books the one shots that are coming, those mm-hmm. feel like a clear lead up into something. But right. I don't but I don't know if we're going to know before that what all of this means or if we're going to find out sort of at the end of all of that, you know. And and with solicits and all that it's so fucked up, who knows. What month was it that you said they were all going to end October? It's like October or November. I think some I think some end in October or some end in November. I could easily see them somehow they're going to I could see them doing some sort of like converge, convergence style bridge event over November and December to lead into the new year with all new, all new number ones. Um, Cause I don't think they would do it in December because they always, they always take that last week of December off, you know? Um, and they do dump, they tend to dump a lot of newsworthy eventy style issues in December, don't don't you think? Like, that's when we got the last issue of Doomsday Clock. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. And so I could easily see them doing a sort of a bridge deal to the fifth generation stuff, 
that would start with the new year and that the bridge would kind of happen in November and December and December would have the, the really uh, spoilery catalyst for whatever it all is. Alexander, do you have a, a, a like gnawing suspicion about when this is all going to happen? I don't necessarily have a gnawing suspicion, but as long as uh, this is better than the actual convergence event itself, <laughs> I am I am completely okay with essentially you know whatever comes next, as long as they're just you know giving the creative teams enough time to uh, wrap up the runs so they don't seem uh, too uh, essentially too too truncated. I mean, I think DC uh, has has started quite quite a lot of books lately for them to be uh, drawing them to a close like so so soon but i'm 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 sure they'd be able to you know find a way and i and i and i do like that feeling of uh in an in interconnected universe where where everything does kind of line up and i would like i i i would like to see uh dc kind of get get back to that a little bit more um with uh you know a line-wide event like that so i definitely am not opposed to it I feel like every week we just devolve into 5G talk now because, because <laughs> well, it's, it's closer it's, and closer. Exactly. So. Um, but the one thing I, I did sort of want to talk about with, with Convergence as the as the sort of uh, jumping off point is if there is that bridge sort of event, do you guys think it'll, it'll be like Convergence was a very self-contained thing that had few ripples going into it? Or is it going to be this sort of... Um, is the self-contained event going to be really important going forward? Hmm. I mean, I think 5G seems like so important. I, I, I can't imagine them taking the time to spotlight things that are like outside of 5G. I, I think that would just kind of destroy some of the momentum. Like right now, uh, I, I know one of the big problems that you guys have been having with the DC, you know, uh, with the, with the DC continuity is like, you know, um, uh, for the Justice League run with with Perpetua seems kind of like separated from the the Batman Who Laughs, which which seems kind of separated from you know some of the things that are happening in Doomsday Clock. So I think that the the best option for DC is to just kind of uh, make sure that everything lines up and is all interconnected to show us that there is like a singular game plan. I mean that's just kind of my take on it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the Generation 5 issue is that's probably where that happens, I think, because that's that's the one that's going to be about whatever comes next. And so you're going to see that will act like your um, Countdown to Infinite Crisis, for example, issue where like where where like there's four or five stories that that spin out of that that inform what comes next. And it, and it will be essentially lion wide, and hopefully better than <laughs> some of the events of the past. That hopefully better than convergence, like you said, Alexander. Like in in theory, I dug that, and in practice, that was just such a slog to get through. <laughs> yeah, uh, somebody on this call. I'm not going to say who. Uh, somebody on this call <laughs> purchased. <laughs> Not just all the issues of Convergence, but also all of the uh, Chip Kid variant cover issues of Convergence. 
I have it on good authority that it was only the Chip Kid variants. Oh, okay, oh, okay, he, okay. He did, not, he did not buy two copies of everything. I, I had thought that, that, that two copies were purchased of everything. Which, uh, what, do you uh, think he's some kind of pervert or something? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are your words, not mine, but, you know, sure. Um, but so the so last 5G question, and I'm sorry to keep 5Ging the show here, but yeah. do we think that at the end of 5G the majority of people that are writing the books now will not be writing the same books when 5G starts? Like, for instance, is is 5G an opportunity to reset the line with new writers, or is it, we're really happy with the people we have writing right now. So we have Bendis on Superman, we have Kelly Sue on Aquaman, and so they're going to shepherd the 5G experience, or is this an excuse to shake up the creative teams? I think most will be I think most will be shaken up. I think like well obviously obviously we pretty much know that we're getting a new Batman writer is the the heavily corroborated rumor there. Um I I think I could see Bendis continuing on Legion of Superheroes. I could see him jumping off of Superman. Um I'm not guaranteeing it. I'm just saying I can I could I can see that very easily. Whereas I think Bendis is on Legion for a little bit longer of a haul. Um But yeah, I, I, I hope Kelly Sue sticks around. I hope you know you keep a Greg Rucka around. I hope some, you find something maybe for Matt Fraction and Grant Moore, like all these great writers or whatever, but but I, I do fear that it's also an opportunity for them to say, well, you know what? Uh, it was good for now at DC, but this is my chance to get out and do something else for a while. And, and you're going to see, you know, mostly Abnett, Venditti, Williamson, uh, maybe Orlando, although he's not exclusive with them anymore, but you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like this might also be an opportunity for some creators to find their exit. Sure. I mean, I think it's going to be a case by case basis. I don't think it's going to be a full like line wide reboot, like, like the new 52 where, you know, basically almost every single book had a different creative team. Um, I, I, I do think that, that some of these creators are going to be sticking around like I, I'm, I'm having a hard time picturing uh, somebody else besides Kelly Sudaconic writing an Aquaman title, even if there's a different uh, lead character. Well, there, there probably will be because of the the five G connection, essentially. Um, but you know, in the in the case of Batman, you know, definitely, most likely, we're gonna we're gonna see a different uh, Batman creative team on board. But I just, I, I think some will will uh you know stay intact and i think I'll, I'll probably a lot will change yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's gonna be very interesting we keep saying that every week but i really do believe uh i mean this is sort of the stuff that the show like this is catnip for us we love this sort of stuff well yeah because it's gonna force us to read uh, 15 books in one week again instead uh, of <laughs> instead of skipping <laughs> some uh, we love and we love that sure <laughs> yeah sure 
All right. Anyway, let's move on to our next title. Unless anyone else has any more Aquaman thoughts. Nope. Okay. Let's talk about Deceased Unkillables. Um, so for those that don't remember, Deceased was a miniseries just a few months ago. It was basically Marvel Zombies, but in the DC Universe. And um, at least the opinion of the folks that were on this show week to week was that we really enjoyed this book. And, um, you know, it sort of um, sparked us calling for Tom Taylor to be on everything at DC. And uh, DC has slightly listened, you know, giving us more Tom Taylor. But this is um, this is the sequel to that series. And um, it is con- continues to be written by Tom Taylor and illustrated by Carl Mostert, who's somebody I'm not all that familiar with. Um, I know I've seen some of his stuff elsewhere, but I can't recall offhand. Um, sort of, he had, he had a story in New in the DC New Year's Evil um, uh, anthology. Do you remember which one um, offhand? No. That's okay. Anyway, um, Vince, we'll start with you. What did you think of this issue? Um, I don't think I liked it as much as the deceased series that came before it. Um, and I think part of it is I think I'm just inherently less interested in the characters that are involved um, like, I guess I'm less interested in, in, in reading a, a deceased book about Slade Wilson and Jason Todd, you know, like cat it's cast. It's nice to have casts around. Um, but they're, they're just characters that I'm, I'm not as big a fan of inherently. And then also you'll remember when we talked about the series, I was so into whatever was coming next you know, when they when they moved to, quote unquote, Earth two um, to get away from the anti-life virus, I, I was so ready for the ne- like the deceased sequel where they start up a new civilization over there and everything is possible. And, and these characters have new mantles and things like that. Um, that really excited me. And then this this kind of went backwards a bit to show you some characters that you, that we didn't really spend time with the first time around, but very much in this same status quo. And so it just, it, it didn't feel as new to me. Didn't feel as exciting to me. Um, and I wasn't the, I mean, some of it looked pretty good, but I also wasn't a huge fan of some of the art. Um, I feel like it varied page to page for me as far as the, the quality upkeep of quality was concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, not, I mean, I didn't hate it, but I'm not chomping at the bit to read the next issue the way that I was surprisingly the, for the first series. I mean, if you recall, I don't believe any of us were super high on the first issue of that. I think that as time went on, we became, more invested in that book. Yeah, that could be. Um, but anyway, so what, what I was going to say about this book, though, is so I, I, I'm with you, Vince. Like, I was, when I was looking at this, I was thinking, oh, do I really want to read another Jason Todd book? You know, I'm already avoiding one Jason Todd book. Do I have to avoid <laughs> a second Jason Todd book now? But I have to say, I think that 
Taylor did some really good stuff with both Jason and Slade. I think having Slade's healing factor as a mitigating uh, like device against the plague was very smart. I thought that the Jason Todd stuff, specifically the uh, the tombstone that he makes for Bruce, which I have to now look up what it said. Um, it said, uh, let's see. Uh, Bruce Wayne, father, mentor, bastard, Batman. So that was that was a really nice character moment for Jason. That that seems like a very Jason reaction to the situation. Um, you know, I, I thought I thought it was pretty good. I I agree that the art sort of varied wildly. I felt that uh, the art was much better with the, in the the action scenes than in the scenes of the characters are kind of hanging out. And um, you know, it's always weird too, like. It's weird to see a character that you're used to looking one way. Like I feel like, despite all the different artists on the book, under Christopher Priest's pen, you kind of knew what Slade looked like, issue to issue. And here he just looks like uh, like off-season Santa Claus with that <laughs> beard. So, um, Alexander, what do you think of this issue? You know, it's, it's, it's funny because I actually uh, was not really that big on uh, the initial deceased run, especially after like reading that first issue and uh, hearing uh, your like initial reactions on the show. I, I actually stayed away from it for a while. And then after, uh, you know, kind of catching back up with you guys and hearing that you liked it, I kind of went back and, and uh, checked it out uh, basically the whole thing. And I, and, and I actually came, uh, came away from that first run, really, really enjoying it. And I actually like this uh, this first issue uh, even even more uh, for for a lot of the same reasons that you said, Brian. I mean, there there are some really great moments here. Just just some classic uh, scripting techniques that that Tom Taylor has. I mean, uh, you you kind of already ran through a couple things, but like Slade uh, ringing the uh, the doorbell of this house with his sword. I mean, that's another like fantastic <laughs> uh, Tom Taylor moment. And then, you know, he he opens the door and then he has to fight a whole bunch of uh, like like skinheads, like and zombies. I mean, that like did like this initial like opening sequence really captivated me in a way that I don't think anything else in that like initial deceased run did. And by the time that was over, I like actually got a Jason Todd who I kind of had some sympathy for. Uh, I I think I kind of had the advantage of of reading everything in a binge, because this uh, second series uh, really kind of goes like deeper into that like apocalyptic type of view, and um, kind of changes like even like the genre a little bit and and kind of makes it even darker, uh, and and you know having having Jason Todd as like the the remaining most prominent like bat family member is really like like a a, a, a fascinating story direction uh, and you know basically uh reintroducing some of the other bat characters i mean throwing mirror master in there i was really really happy with the book until uh you know this this kind of scene with uh with Vandal Savage and, and this whole bit about the tree lobsters. I think that was way over the top. <laughs> I, I, 
I, I don't think Tom Taylor con- conveyed uh, his uh, message of, of, of humor, uh, you know, in a, in a way that was, you know, very, uh, I mean, you know, coherent here. I mean, it was just way over the top with everybody having those shirts. I mean, I, I, I just don't see the creeper being weird in that specific way. The creeper should be weird in like some other sort of way that involves him giggling. <laughs> so right. to me the creeper here seemed like it was tom taylor trying to do a um oh why am i totally blanking on his name uh, uh mark russell bit I feel, oh. like, I feel like this is taylor trying to do mark russell that's a that's a good point um but yeah um I mean, I didn't hate that part. I, I didn't think it was fantastic, but I didn't. I didn't hate it that much. I, I think that what's really interesting here is that this is the rare instance where, when this book was announced, everybody said this is Marvel Zombies done at DC, and then Taylor has sort of proved everybody wrong, and, and everybody's been sort of on board with it. And it, I would argue that, not from a financial standpoint, but from a critical one. This has already surpassed Marvel Zombies in terms of just what critics think of it. And I think that I, mean, I have maybe you guys are more um, more dedicated Marvel Zombie readers than I am. But I feel like this is something that I don't know if Marvel Zombies ever went this nuanced from looking at the same events from a different angle. It's just, it's just interesting to me how this becomes like an intellectual, a more intellectual Marvel Zombies even though it's not a very intellectual concept. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I generally enjoyed this. I, I think it's, um, you know, like I said, there, there were some parts of it that were better than others, and I think that artistically there were some parts that were a bit rough. But overall, I'm I'm happy that this is going to be around for, I think it's three issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, um, let's just keep letting Tom Taylor do stuff. Because his Suicide Squad's a lot of fun right now, this is really fun. Um, yeah, let's 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 do it, DC. Get Tom Taylor on more stuff. Um, all right, well, let's do this. Let's take a break, and when we return, we're going to talk about the uh, the last three issues of the week. So stay tuned. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with a discussion about Plunge number one. It seems like it wasn't that long ago that Stuart Immonen had declared his uh, sort of quasi-retirement from comics. He basically said he was only going to do stuff he really wanted to do, and apparently he really wanted to do a horror comic, and so uh, Joe Hill and DC snatched him up to do a plunge over at DC. So, as I just mentioned, written by uh, Joe Hill, illustrated by Stuart Immonen. So, I just... um, 
I'm in a book club with some friends, and the book for this month is a Stephen King novel. And it's been a number of years since I've read a King book, and in I, I finished the book today right before I read Plunge. And I think that this is maybe the most Stephen Kingy of Joe Hill's comic work so far. I feel like everything about this is setting up a very classic sort of Stephen King story from like there's a quasi-scientific explanation for some weird anomaly that's happening. There's a crew that has to travel together made up of like disparate personalities from different parts of the world. Um, it all just seems very Stephen King-esque to me. And I don't mean that as a, as a negative. I mean that as a compliment. I think this is a very effective first issue. And even if it was written by somebody far less talented than Joe Hill, it's just so nice to be reading a Stuart Immonen comic right now. So, uh, Alexander, what did you think of this? I agree with everything you said. I mean, I was really blown away just just opening up, uh, you know, like that that first page there. Um, and actually, I I was really interested to go back to Stuart Eminem art. I mean, especially at uh, Marvel after seeing like how much of his influence is uh, really um, changing, like like how the the publisher operates. I mean, specifically with like. Powers of uh, with with power House of X and uh, Powers of Ten, like like seeing like Pep, Pepe Larraz and then comparing Pepe Larraz to like Stuart Eminem here. I mean, I I I just don't think that there's any uh, true substitute for uh, actual Stuart Eminem art uh, going through uh, some of the uh, interior pages here. Uh, it because of the the genre and the subject matter of the book it did take a while for me to really get invested into the story and i think that the book had a little bit uh, too much of the exposition dump towards the beginning i think that as the issue kind of progresses joe hill uh, is able to to craft uh, some some really good uh, dialogue and relationships between the characters and then by by those last couple pages, I mean, for me, everything finally came together. But I think what I was really missing was a really strong cliffhanger and like last page. The one that we're given here kind of teases a, a small supernatural twist, but it doesn't have me like hanging off the, the edge of my seat until the next issue. But we're already onto something here, thanks to some of the really like lively relationships, and and also, I mean, just just Stuart Eminem is like completely uh, un unparalleled. He, I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about his work, especially after looking at uh, that issue of Deceased, is, is that his characters never are just standing around. There's always some kind of secondary action that makes them look. Uh, so natural and it, like completely immersed in their environment. So I just I don't take any of these pages that he's drawn here for granted. That Let's is see. a great point. And e even if it's just waving a dildo around in the air, it's uh, <laughs> they're always doing something. Um, no, that's really well said. Um, I completely agree with it. Right down to the ending too. I thought the final page cliffhanger was. 
about as standard as this sort of thing gets, but that's not like a huge sin. Um, but you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't have you like salivating for whatever comes next. Oh, Oh, the, there's a, a, a zombie guy and, and he knows the character's name, you know, and it's probably because of the, these, uh, worms that are chewing on his neck or whatever, you know, um, it, it's, it's pretty standard horror trope type stuff. Um, but you're right about all the relationships and th- those, uh, in such a short amount of time, just one issue, those come together really quickly. And I feel like, you know, you're only given 20 pages to do it. And Joe Hill does it about as credibly as possible in such a short amount of time. So I think the characters are all really well drawn. I think, uh, in books like this, I've read plenty of creator owned books that are like this where one or two characters have a personality and the rest are just stock background material. But I feel like, I feel like we were introduced to four or five characters here. I, I can't, I don't know the exact count, but like I could tell you a little bit about each of their personalities and, and that's, that's enough for a single issue uh, of a comic book, I think. And, and, uh, you know, nobody is super, superfluous uh, around here. Um, and the art, the art is just great. Um, so much personality in the art. Even just the opening scene with that Coast Guard guy playing fetch with his dog, you know, that there's enough personality in that cold opener to that, you know, some comics don't have in their in entire arcs. You know, it's... Uh, it shows you why Eminem's a master because like, well, like you said, how, how like uh, so much of Marvel style kind of is influenced by what Eminem did before the, the style is not difficult to approximate. I think, I think it's a, a, a pretty standard comic book style, but it's what Eminem does with It's the real comic booking of the thing that makes him, so special, so beyond most artists, I think. Um, yeah, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I wanted to point out two specific things, which is that we get this this character that um, it works for the oil company, who, when you first meet him, you're like, I know exactly who this is. This guy is a stooge. He's whatever. And through both Hill's script, but also specifically through Eminem's body language he gives him this character reveals himself to be very different than you initially think and it, it's not like there's not a big twist that brings that about it's just this like it, it's you're watching a master make something out of marvel he marble rather he's just chipping away at this and giving the character more and more nuance more and more detail and he does that with a few characters like you said vince everyone in this book has at least a little bit of personality going into a second issue um and then you get that, you get, you know, Eminem just working on somebody slouching or the way that they hang their head. And then you also get him doing batshit sea monsters. And he can do, he can pull off both so effectively and so naturally that it's just something to really behold. I I could read Stuart Eminem comics all day long. Um, now, overall, 
do you guys are, how are we feeling about about Hill House? Alexander, obviously this is the first time you're on the show, so we don't know your your thoughts on this whole line. Are you reading all the Hill House books? Or uh, did you read the first issues or sort of what's your engagement with those books right now? Uh, my, my engagement with uh, Hill House has been, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much like, like very, very slim. I, I did uh, take a look at the first issue of uh, Basketful of Heads. I, I did enjoy that. I think this this book I'm, I'm really going to stick with. Uh, essentially, you know, I I think that if you're going to introduce a, a brand new concept, I think it helps to have art that's that's this good to kind of pull you in with uh, the the characters and and the stories that they're trying to introduce. And if if the the quality of art I I think was at was at this high of a level across all the books, I, I'd probably be there with with each one. But I just don't think uh, that 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 is even feasible, essentially. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, Vince, how many of these are you reading regularly right now? Uh, well, it's going to be three out of the five because, um, Daphne Byrne, I, I think we, <laughs> think we all know that that's not up my alley for, uh, you know, one big reason, but, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, also, uh, the dollhouse family lost me too, which is interesting because that creative team, of Mike Carey and Peter Gross is the one that I was most excited to uh, for going into this. Uh, it's crazy to me because I, I love the unwritten. You know, it's that's one of my favorite comics of all time, and and Dollhouse Family just did nothing for me. But I think the two Joe Hill ones, um, you know, Plunge is only one issue in, but I think they're I think they're both great, and I think the Lolo Woods is low key my favorite one. That one blew me away. Um, so I think they're doing, you know, they're, they're three for five right now, which is, that's a good for comics. That is a good batting average, I think. Yeah. And I would argue that like Daphne Byrne, if you're a big Kelly Jones person, that might be a must buy for you. If you think of Kelly Jones as, you know, as a great comic talent, I know Vince, you are not as much of a Kelly Jones fan. So that makes sense. Um, and I think that maybe the Dollhouse family, I'm going to give that a, a, another shot when the trade comes out. And uh, we'll see. I'm also not the biggest horror guy, but I'm really happy that there is like a space in DC's publishing line where they can, you know, release content that doesn't even necessarily like appeal to me. I'm, I'm glad that we can have kind of that level of uh diversity you know within dc and i wanted i i essentially want this line to to keep being published yeah i i wonder if there's um how can i put this like I, we've had horror books within the dc main continuity you know going back even just you know you think back to the new 52 things like i vampire were were horror books essentially i i would I would argue that's maybe more of a romance comic than anything else, but that's that's me, um, you know, nitpicking here. Um, but you know, do you guys ever think that there'll there'll be more more of a DC horror feel in the main line, or will it always be a book here and there? You know, your Justice League Darks, etc. Yeah, I think it'll only be a book here and there. I just think. 
it's a it's a tough sell for people who are coming for superhero comics. Um, like I feel like those, I feel every time DC puts out one of those horror adjacent books, um, that they're among the worst sellers, uh, month to month. It doesn't mean they're not good, but you know, I just don't think they're popular enough to sustain like a real movement within the publisher. That's a shame. Yeah, I, I I think that's absolutely right, and I'm glad to see that uh, Hill House at least you know offers the the platform for DC to publish, uh, you know, content like like that within you know within DC essentially. Yeah, and I I think that this was a very smart move. I mean, so far, all of DC's pop up imprints have been built around people that I think are pretty impeccable in terms of. Uh, both their ability to grab good people to work with and also just their general like name recognition. You know, I know we haven't had a Wildstorm book in a long time, and that's a big bummer, but you know, you, you put Warren Ellis on something and people are gonna get excited about that. Uh, you know, um Gerard Way's uh Young Animal stuff has been a huge success. Brian Bendis's Wonder Comic stuff, these are all iconic creators with a very specific vision. And I don't think that Joe Hill is necessarily in that conversation just yet. He's a, he's a very well-respected writer, but he's not, you know, he's not Brian Bendis, right? But I think that having a very marketable face as the face of your imprint can only be a good thing for DC going forward. Yeah, All I right. completely agree. Well, let's talk about um, Superman Smashes the Clan. Number one, number three, which I, I have a big, I, I have a big take on this issue, uh, and sort of the series in general later on. But it's written by Gene Lu and Yang, illustrated by Guru Guri Hiru, and uh, Vince. I know you you're a huge fan of this book, so why don't you start us off? Ah oh, man, I mean, I can't imagine. I, I mean, maybe it'll happen, but I can't imagine DC putting out a better issue of a comic this year. Than this, I think uh, I think Gene Lu and Yang knocked his story out of the park. I think the art is tremendously good. Um, I think you know if there's any justice, this should be like a perennial seller on bookshelves when they uh, at bookstores and things when they collect this ultimately in in a trade form. Um, I mean, where to begin? Like, first of all, we've already talked about how a story like this can only be written by by a creator like Gene Lu and Yang. To do such a nuanced look at the racial struggles in America, you know, uh, filtered through so many different characters and Superman among them, you know, Superman's part in this story about feeling like an outsider is some of the most sensitive and nuanced portrayals of that, that I've seen. And, you know, we see stories about Superman being an alien or being from another planet all the time. Right. But in this context, it just, Yang slips it in just so easily and 
it slots right in there alongside everything else. You know, this this fictional feeling of being an outsider married up against these very real feelings, you know? And I think, like, <laughs> for, for every bit of that to be as well-balanced as it is is incredible, I think. There's not a false step here. And, and uh, you know, whether it's the Chinese immigrant family or the black police officer or Superman himself or the young white supremacist who's been kind of uh dragged into it by his uncle you know it's it's all so layered and and yet easily digestible for basically any audience you know any kid could pick this up and understand the themes here and and internalize them and uh, a lot of that is due to the art, which goes down so smoothly and depicts things so clearly and attractively and colorfully. Uh, I, I'm just going to keep gushing and gushing if I go on any longer. So <laughs> somebody else talk. Go for it, Alexander. I, yeah, this issue in particular was was really, really incredible. And I just, I don't think I really appreciated it until I read uh, the editorial in the back, which which really broke down some of the elements of uh, continuity. I mean, I, I literally just started like researching some of the names and then I accidentally ran into uh, some of the 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 superhero or the the, the Superman serial. I, I accidentally ran into that while I was researching one of the character names in the book. Mm. And after like reading about, you know, some of the, some of a uh, Jean Loon Yang's own, own struggles and, and going back here and, and putting it, you know, in, in context, it, I mean, especially the part where he talked about how, you know, Superman essentially fighting the, the, the clan, even was the the start of of defaming uh, the actual Ku Klux Klan themselves? I mean, it's 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 just impeccable how important this is, and it's it's incredible how how easy to read it is, and and just how powerful uh, the book is. Um, I I have a completely different appreciation for this book. And I, I, I finally understand why it, it's it's already being talked about as, you know, a, a book of the year from uh, so many like respected outlets, essentially. I mean, this is this is a, a, a really powerful story. I mean, there there are scenes of, of, you know, intense action that that really matter because not, you know, every the the majority of, of the people in this book are not, you know, super powered essentially. And it just creates uh, such a, such a gap between what, what Superman can do and, and what the other people in the book can do. Uh, and, and already, I mean, this works on so many different levels, which is a phrase I think you guys have even acknowledged in, in the context of this book. But I, I think there's even something to be said about even reading that editorial and then actually reading the, the, the issue itself. I mean, I just think it'll give you a completely different appreciation uh, for the book and, and how much and, and, and just how well researched 
this uh, script is. It's it's just an incredible piece of art here. So here here is my hot take on this issue, which is a good one. I'm not going to be negative at all. I love this issue, but this will never be considered like an official Superman origin story, just because it's so tied into specific years. And all of DC's origins now have to be written with the sense of this can make sense if it's in 1990. It all comes, baby. Yeah. It all comes. Yeah. But this, you know, this could have been 1990, 1970. doesn't really matter. Like, this is firmly entrenched in an older time. But this is the only Superman origin story anyone ever needs to read. Yes. You could give anybody. If you say, who is Superman? What is he about? Give somebody this book and say, this is who Superman is. And I think you will get anything that you need to know about the character out of this book. There are so many wonderfully written things. I'm just talking about Superman now. I'm going to talk about other characters in a minute. But just like, I think one of the knocks against Superman you often hear is, well, he's too powerful. And then you hear people say, well, when, in, the, in the golden age, he didn't, he wasn't that powerful. He he leaped tall buildings. He didn't fly. And so people talk about how wanting to go back to that sort of an understanding of his powers. What this book does so well is it shows you how he went from the person who leaped and didn't fly into somebody who can fly. And it justifies him being kind of an overpowered hero. I think that's really clever. I think the way that they dealt with his his heritage and his family was really, really well done. I think it's an issue two, actually, because I had actually reread the whole series today in preparing for this. Um, but where Superman is trying, he's basically looking at something outside of the coffee shop, and Lois Lane thinks he's basically just uh, peeping on a girl, <laughs> and he, she gets all mad at him. And I feel like this issue kind of shows how aloof he can be as Clark Kent. Sometimes Clark Kent is just presented as this like this nice guy who can't do anything wrong. And this book shows how, like, no, if you're super-powered, you can kind of come off as being distracted and aloof all the time. And I think that's a really important aspect of the character. It's just such a well-written Superman comic. But I will say it's a better-written comic about just the immigrant experience in particular. And again, I, I'm I'm talking squarely out of my ass here as I'm not an immigrant myself, but there's a particular line in, again, I think it comes up in a couple of issues where someone's talking about, oh, all you Chinese are this way. And um, I'm going to forget the, the main girl's name. Um, what is her name, guys? Uh, Roberta is her. Roberta, uh, yes, her Americanized, Americanized name, name. yes. Um, Roberta basically says, like, we're not all anything. We are all, we're all individuals. Like, you can't, you can't say all Chinese are this or all Chinese that we're all individuals. And that's such a, that's such a simple and obvious observation, yet so many people, I think still to this day, characterize people that way. And it was just, Yang doesn't do this stuff in a way that feels um, judgmental. Like Even the white supremacists have nuance here. You know, the, the, the boy's uncle, who's sort of the local grand wizard, is a true believer in the racist stuff, but the people above him are like, no, that's about making money, man. Who cares? Racists yeah. can't be better than one another. Like, and it shows that guy being disillusioned with this organization that he's a part of, and it makes you kind of feel bad for a white supremacist. Like, you know, it's, it's. Just I wouldn't like, go that far. No, I mean, not feel bad, but you, you, you understand sort of 
you see a new angle. To, yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I, I don't want to say you don't feel sympathy at all because he's a monster, but you understand what I'm saying. Like it's just yeah. And I feel like every character... it's not as cut and dry as it appeared. Right, before. and I feel like every yeah. character in this book is given an opportunity to to change the expectation of who they are and what they're all about over the course of the issues. And it's just it's just so well done. And yeah, this is I'll say it again, it's the only Superman origin story anyone ever needs to read. Yep. Man, let's get this in every classroom in the country, guys. Come on. Yep. Let's do it. Um has has Yang talked about whether he wants to do more in this in this time frame? I don't know, man, but he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> he's yes. he's he's a master. Yeah. I hope he does, obviously. Um, Let's get him on a five G book. Yes, that yes. too. Uh Vince had hypothesized that maybe uh New Superman will come back as part of that. Were you, did you read that run, Alexander? I read a little bit of it. Uh, I, you know, I I know that it kind of built to uh, a higher quality, kind of as it went. But I'm one day I'm going to have to go back and just give that like a proper read through. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's quite good. And again, like Zach and I said all the time, like Vince was right about that. We were. We were wrong about it. We we oh, gave up on it. The yeah. one time I was ever right. I'm I'm so glad you keep bringing it up. Hey, be thankful, man. I could I could stop bringing it up if you want. No, no, no. I'm I'm being genuine. Okay, okay. Uh, but yeah, Yang is the best. And Guru Hiru, Guru Hiru. I'm I'm the world's worst pronouncer. Um, but let's get. I, I I am a big proponent of just getting artists with different styles doing more DC work. Get, yes. get get more work for for everyone involved here. I would never think that I would ever see Guru Hero's art in this context, but I'm I'm really happy to have seen it because it is amazing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, any other Superman smashes the clan thoughts before we wrap up with our final book of the week? I think I'm all. I think I'm a lot of uh, words here. <laughs> yeah. We're all out of praise to give. We've uh we've we've gotten pretty deep in the in the praise there. But anyway, that brings us to a Teen Titans number thirty nine. Uh this is sort of the first issue of I guess what they're calling the Gin Wars, uh written by Adam Glass and Robbie Thompson, a new co writer, illustrated by Eduardo Pansica, who we haven't seen in a little while, I feel like. Um he was sort of a uh, ubiquitous DC artist for a while, but I feel like it's been a while since we've seen him. Uh, Vince, you're the one who wanted to talk about this book, so why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, um, basically the main reason I wanted to talk about it was because uh, of the, spoiler alert, Jakeem Thunder uh, appearance, which, you know, la last seen in the final issue of Doomsday Clock, but before that, what 2011 right before there there was no Jakeem Thunder in the new 52 was there I don't think so I don't think so yeah so it's been a long time coming and I'm a big fan of that character um and it was like 
I, I am reading the uh, Infinite Crisis lead up for a future DC three cast project, and there's some Jakeem Thunder that I've come across in there, and it's just like slipping right back into a warm bath or something uh, re- with the character again because like, he sounds right here. Everything looks the way that it looked before, you know, like they could easily just pretend these last uh, 10 years or whatever never happened if they wanted to, you know, Um, I I think he's a great character. I think he's a great concept. I think that concept slips in to the gin war stuff that's going on right now really well. Um, And I was just excited to, to see Jakeem back. So that's why I wanted to talk about this book. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to tell right now where Adam Glass and Robbie Thompson's uh, contributions begin and end, but um, I think it's a pretty well-written book. I think something I've said about Teen Titans uh, since the relaunch has been that um, it doesn't, most of the time, it doesn't sound like adults writing kids you know it's uh, it, the the voices are fairly accurate i feel um and i i just like i like all these new characters including Jin, and although she spends much of the issue uh trapped away in a ring but i i like roundhouse a lot and i'm happy to have jakeem back it's it's it was, it was good times in teen titans land this month Alexander, I'm I'm a huge proponent of this book. Uh, Roundhouse in particular has had such an amazing character arc, and I am so glad to see him kind of like on the up here. I mean, there there is so much uh, personality here that was devoid of all these years. You know, I mean, essentially when when Rebirth started, there were all these Teen Titans teams where Damian took the lead. Uh, but for some reason, there just wasn't uh, the personality there. And somehow, you know, Adam Glass and Robbie Thompson are the are the two creators that have really, uh, you know, found uh, the 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 place for for the team to really interact with each other. I mean, we've had we you know, we we now have a really healthy uh, uh, Teen Titans run. I mean, the characters have such good dynamics between each other it's so funny to see them interact with uh jakeem when when he comes up i mean it's like it's like he's he's from like a different universe like just just like the way he's talking and then the way that they're all uh reacting to him you know everybody's kind of skeptical about like what he's essentially uh bringing to the team and and nobody's really hiding it and when you factor in you know elements like you know roundhouse and you know some of the aspects that are going on with uh with with red arrow too i mean i just i i literally cannot believe uh the state that this book is in now and 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 how healthy it's in i think this is a really uh important um in 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 prominent time for for the teen titans again i just i just don't really know how many people are 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 really paying attention to this book because i know that outside of you know my own experience listening to you guys i i'm i'm not sure if i would have been even interested in in picking up this title that's an interesting point i wonder if part of that is is because 
at the moment, and, and this has only been true for a year or so, but for so many people, when they think of Teen Titans, they think of a certain generation of characters, whether that's, um, you know, people like Wally West and uh, Dick Grayson, who are sort of in that post-Rebirth Titans book, or I think for a lot of people now, they think of Connor Kent and Tim Drake, and so now that there's a Young Justice book, if people's attentions are over there when they're looking for their young DC characters as opposed to being over here. But I think that this book has done a really nice job in establishing a um, a real feeling of there being a generation of young heroes. That That might sound reductive, but I think sometimes we get the sense that like when you think about the heroes of let's go with the the Connor Kent generation, there's like ten or twelve heroes that you instantly think of as being part of this generation. They weren't just in books at the same time with each other, but they interacted. There was a history there, and there was a sort of shared um, just a, a, a shared aesthetic among all those characters, and I think that. Vince mentioning like Jakeem Thunder coming in and being a totally different feel shows that this is a um that this is a book where the team does have a very distinct feel. And Jakeem is not part of that. And that's not to say that he couldn't work as part of the team. It's just that Glass has done such a good job of saying this is who the Teen Titans are, this is how they interact with each other, and I'm just I'm really kind of blown away by how book how good this book continues to be. Because like you, Alexander, I don't think on the surface I wanted this book. And, I, you know, we openly bitched on this show about Adam Glass being the writer of it because we remembered his New 52 um, Suicide, Suicide Squad, Squad yeah. run, and we're not particularly fans of it. But, you know, that's one of the benefits of reading every comic that comes out for a while is that you give stuff a chance you wouldn't normally give a chance to. And I think that this book is really, really good, and it's been now, gosh... It's probably been ten or more issues since there's been a clunker in in Teen Titans, and that that's hard for almost any series to go for nearly a year without a bad issue. But I would say that's that's how I feel about this book right now, and that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though, I, I do miss Bernard Chang's art a little bit here. No yeah. offense to Eduardo Pensica, but I really liked what Bernard Chang was doing on this series. Bernard Chang uh, doing an X book, is that right? Pretty soon? Is he? Uh, talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to look at something. Okay. Um, Alexander, did you... Um, is there a certain... Is there a Teen Titans era that feels like your Teen Titans? Oh gosh, uh, I you know I really do like that Jeff Johns run. Uh, I'm trying to go back and think of uh, what else there's been. I you know I I actually have uh, read the majority of the Marv Wolfman run too. I think I think that holds up really well. But I I I really do think that you know this book has just a personality that's that's all its own. I mean I just think it's it's edgy. It's 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 extremely edgy, but I, but I just don't think it's like quite as dark as people probably. Well, it it kind of is that dark, right? I mean, but it's but, not. I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you mean. The stakes yeah. are really high. There's some really dark stuff happening, 
but it's not walking around feeling sorry for itself. It's tasteful. (laughs) It's tastefully dark. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Also, I I mean, sorry, what were we going to say? No, go ahead. I think Eduardo Panseco's pencils are so good. I mean, page, the second interior page of this, where all of the team members are kind of like in battle, I think that's such a great kind of kind of splash page. And there's so much action. I really like like the expressions and the weird angles and some of the secondary actions and the way that people are reacting. Um, essentially, even when they're not like the focal point of the panel. I, I, I love these pencils. I'm crazy about these pencils. I think they're great. Vince, did you get our, our answer? I did, yeah. yeah. He's drawing the uh, Children of the Atom with uh, Vida Ayala oh. writing. Oh, that should be fun. Yeah. Huh, look at that. Good for Bernard Chang. Um, all right, so, Vincey, what's coming out next week? All right, next week we got Action uh, 1020 and also Detective Comics 1020, which I think... That's uh, not a very common occurrence that the legacy numbering of those two have lined up. Um, I don't think that's ever happened before, actually. I think it's happened one time before. Oh, sorry there. (laughs) Um, Amethyst number one, which is going to totally be my jam, I'm sure. Um, Basketful of Heads 5, Batgirl 44, Batman Beyond 41, uh, Batman Curse of the White Knight 7, Batman Superman 7, Books of Magic 17, uh, Dial H for Hero Finale, uh, number 12, Far Sector 4, uh, Justice League Dark 20, The Last God 5, Leviathan Dawn, number 1, um, Red Hood Outlaw 43, Shazam, number 11, Suicide Squad, number 3, Wonder Woman, number 752, and you're the villain, Hella Risen, number three. That's a big week. That's a huge week. It's a big and, uh, matzo ball. Before we close our books on this week, uh, we have our lists. On the good list, we have Batman, Legion of Superheroes, Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen, Wonder Woman, Dead Earth. On the okay list, we have Joker Killer Smile, uh, Justice League, and the Wonder Twins. On the Hill House list, we have the Lola Woods, although Vince wants to point out how good that is. Uh, Sandman Universe list, we have Lucifer. On the Jurgens list, we have Nightwing. Um, on the Boy the Creeper list, we have Flash Forward, which we're going to have to talk about the events of that book at some point, but not this week. Um, on the Walmart list, we have Titans Burning Rage. And uh, new edition, oh, sorry, uh, on the Dedeo list, we have Metal Men. And uh, a new edition here on the Tim Seeley list, we have He Man and the Masters of the Multiverse. Alexander, thank you so much for stopping by the show tonight. We really appreciate you pinch hitting for Zach. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been awesome. If folks want to find you on Twitter, where can they do so? I'm at Alex and Comics. And uh, I am on Twitter at Brian is an app. And we all know that Vince is is not on social media except for Farmers Only. Farmers but- Only. Alex, you on Farmers Only? <laughs> no. Ah, you'll never be lonely. <laughs> I mean, I think we can just infer from this that Alexander is city folk. And that he just doesn't understand. <laughs> that's why he's not on Farmers Only. Um, but no, if you need to get in touch with Vince, you can, um, as always, find him with his. Um, oh God, I had I had a joke. Yeah, and not then, yeah. 
and then tanking. I'm taking it here. You find my farmers only, whatever. It's still funny. Still funny <laughs> a year later. Uh, um, anyway, uh, thanks again to Alexander. Thank you as always to Vince, Zachy. Feel better soon. We'll see you hopefully next week. And uh, enjoy your books, guys. Bye. <laughs> I'm just I'm just looking at my list. I forgot we actually have a nut face list. I don't know what what book actually <laughs> fell on that list at any time, but that's on my that, document here. That's between you and God. <laughs>